0: So in our guest room, at approximately 7 a.m. on uh, July 28th of this past year, Lois Ann Meinhart died from metastatic cancer, but not before having discovered a tremendous living hope in God. Lois gave permission and wanted Tracy and myself to share with you her spiritual experience without any censorship. It had been actually one year before in which I received a frantic call from a, a woman who I really didn't know. It had been a year before that at a church picnic out in the Boston Common that I had met Lois and I had given her, which I don't normally do, but I had given her my cell phone number. She never called me until a year later when I had received this call, she had been uh, listening to a church service on the radio, and uh, and that prompted her to, I guess, remember that she had my number, and she made a phone call. I almost didn't pick up, but I'm glad that I did. She was in despair. Her situation, she was a 73-year-old woman. She had no family, few friends. Uh, she had no savings. She, uh, her job, which was her passion, which was teaching students how to dance, had come to an end, and that's where she received extra income through her her gig work as a dance teacher, had ended because of COVID. And uh, she was also being forced out of of her current apartment, and she didn't know where she was going to move. Uh, But that's not why she had come to wit's end when she made that phone call. As she sat in her car, and I didn't know it at the time, and she, she didn't say it until later, she was contemplating taking her life because that week at Mass General, she had just received a devastating, serious cancer diagnosis. Put it all together, and it was just it was too much. She was out of hope. Lois had fallen into despair. And it's certainly the case that as life unfolds, Despair can overtake any one of us. The world often feels harsh, anxiety grips, we can't seem to find a way of escape, and there's just too many enemies on too many fronts. And of course, as we begin 2022, there's really a long list of unknowns that many of us are facing. It doesn't feel like such a happy new year, There's a COVID surge. Some of us are facing some serious illnesses. Others are dealing with marital struggles and struggles with uh, work and hardship at school. Uh, Others are dealing with uh, levels of isolation. Some are dealing with difficult friendships that uh, have gone sour. And it's easy to fall into despair. Despair is to be overwhelmed by evil. And that was something that the Lord really impressed upon me, is that uh, as we go into this new year, I need to recover greater hope. And it seems to me that's probably something that many of you, and we as a church, need to grow in hope. Our reflection today is on Psalm 23, and Psalm 23 is a great psalm that gives much hope. Ironically, the word hope doesn't actually appear in Psalm 23, but the whole passage oozes of hope. There are two operating metaphors, the sheep shepherd for verses one through four, and then this idea of pilgrimage that takes place in verses five and six. And what holds together the two metaphors is this concept of movement, movement as pilgrims moving from one direction into Uh, the the house of the Lord, as the psalm culminates. And the reason why the psalm is about hope is because as we're wayfarers on pilgrimage, we get discouraged, and we hit many obstacles. And what happens on the way is we lose hope. And so the psalmist is giving uh, and reminding us of how to have hope. You can hear the the ideas of hope in just the counter of if you were to consider what it means to despair. And perhaps this reflects something that you might be feeling. The Lord is not my shepherd. I am in want. He doesn't make me lie down in green pastures. He's not restoring my soul. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I do fear evil. Because you're not with me. And those are the thoughts that often trouble us when we begin to move into places of doubt and despair. But we need hope, and that is what the psalmist is calling us to, is to hope. But then what is hope? How would we go about defining it? And I'd suggest to you there are really kind of two different ways of defining hope. There's a conventional sense of hope, and then there is what the Bible calls us to a very particular theological kind of hope. The conventional hope is the desire for a future good that's difficult but possible to obtain. And of course we can have too much hope in which we end up overestimating our chances and then because we have too much hope we ended up giving an inadequate effort and then we don't end up getting what we desire. Or the opposite is we can have too little hope in the thing that we're hoping for and we under, underestimate our chances, and then we give up too soon, and then we don't get what we're desiring, and if we had not given up, we would have actually achieved it. The concept of conventional hope, the way we often use it in our vocabulary, it, there is a, a, inherent to it an uncertainty about what we're desiring. And we're never quite sure whether we have too much hope or too little hope, and we need experience and knowledge and and prayer and counsel from others uh, in order to try to capture the right amount of hope in order to guide us in, in how to respond to the different situations that we're hoping for. But distinct from this conventional language and use of how we think about hope, there is theological hope, biblical hope, that we're called to. How would we define theological hope? Well, this hope is the certainty of a future that culminates in the beatific vision. That is, we will see God face to face. That we will have total union with Christ and that his spirit will, will totally be within us, giving us eternal happiness with him and with others. To hope in God, you see, is to be certain of your glorious future end. That's coming. Now uh, I think we really do need to be considering the theme of hope and so uh, our intention is over the next couple weeks is to consider the topic of hope. Next week we'll think about how hope encounters the obstacle of suffering. And we'll discuss the relationship of hope and suffering. The week after the intention is to go over the question of whether Biblical hope is simply an escape from all the difficulties and challenges that we face in this world. And we'll consider that question. But today, I'd like us to consider this question, which is, how do we grow in hope? How do you nourish hope so that it overflows within your heart? And uh, because it's Communion Sunday, and I'm just going to simply reflect on one phrase that comes out of Psalm 23, which we just read, which is in verse 5, which says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And as we reflect on this simple phrase that's in Psalm 23, I'd like to point out to you three ways that you and I can nourish hope. So first, hope is nourished as we consider a prepared table. You hear the phrase? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The first way we can nourish hope is by considering this prepared table. Now imagine yourself. Imagine being homeless, uh, perhaps hungry, cold, and without friends. And there you see a door and you decide that you're going to go and knock on the door and, uh, and ask for help. But before you even get to the door, all of a sudden it swings open. And there on the other side opening the door is God. Well, hello, he says to you. I'm so glad you finally made it. I've been waiting for so long. What took you so, so long? Come on in. And you're shocked. And You come come in and he takes your coat and and he hangs it up for you and immediately you see on your right a a blaze of a fire and a warm hearth. Your favorite music is playing. Uh, And there are many guests who already know your name. And then you're amazed. You see this gigantic table. It's beautiful. Bouquet of flowers, the finest of China. And there on the table is... A delicious meal and it's not just a great meal, it's your very favorite food. So for me it would be like a really good steak maybe combined with some salted French fries and to assuage my guilt I'd take some asparagus I guess. (laughs) But what amazes you most about this fine table that has been decked out before you is there right at your plate where you're about to sit down is carved in this ornamental table your very own name. You see, the Lord prepares a table. He uniquely readies a table for each one of us. So in God's foreknowledge and in his providence, the Holy Spirit, in his tenderness to you, he anticipates your needs, he considers your tastes and your likes, and the Lord lavishes gracious care on you. The prophet Isaiah says the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises up to show you compassion. And if you look in your life, there are evidences of his gracious care everywhere that you would look if you have the eyes to see them. Sometimes we're slow to see the Lord's lavish graciousness towards us, but other times we instantly recognize what the Lord has done. Tracy and I experienced that with Lois. You see, she had been with her cancer diagnosis very had grown increasingly anxious. She was moving from hospital to rehab uh, and she could not return to her apartment because she, quite honestly, she, there was no way she could take care of herself. Not only this, but at, when she, while she was in the hospital she could not have any visitors, and she became increasingly anxious of this thought of being put into a long-term nursing facility, not being able to have visitors, and there dying alone. And Tracy and I, we, it's hard to explain, but the Lord just impressed upon the two of us that he was calling us to invite Lois to come and to live in our home. And so, uh, on a cold February afternoon, uh, Lois was brought by ambulance, and uh, on the uh, on her uh, bed, she was brought up our stairs and brought into our our guest room. And as Lois came into the room, she went, "Oh!" <gasps> and she gasped uh, with with joy. Uh, our son, Our house is not very sunny, but she happened to come at just the moment where the sun was just pouring through the windows. And it was shining right on this bouquet, beautiful bouquet of flowers that a congregational member had sent, uh, knowing that Lois was about uh, to arrive. And not only so, but in this guest room, we had Tracy and I had just renovated it with fresh paint, a new rug, all new furnishings. And literally, the day before, uh, the curtains that had been ordered six months beforehand were installed. And, uh, and, and we only knew Lois was coming two days before, before, uh, before she arrived. But you see, the Lord was preparing a room for Lois. She was preparing us to receive her and preparing this room for her. And Lois knew it. She knew it deep down. And that's why she just exploded with, with joy. And the reflection of this prepared space for her gave her hope that she hadn't experienced in in quite some time. And so the the lesson here is that the sooner you recognize God's preparations that he's been making out of his gracious tenderness to you the more quickly hope will be nourished in you. Well there's a second way that we can uh, nourish hope Hope is nourished as we consider not only that it's a prepare, prepared table, but that it's a prepared table. That it's a table. This, uh, this language of prepared table, there are two Hebrew words that occur, that occur only in combination in reference to a single table uh, that's talked about in the Old Testament. And it's in Exodus 40 and Leviticus 24. It's the table of the presence. The table of the presence, which is found in the holy place, and if you think about the, the tabernacle and the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant resided, and then just outside of the Holy of Holies was the holy place in which there was the, 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 the lampstand, and there was the table of the presence, and then on the table of the presence was placed bread, or the show, was placed the showbread. It was the, the continual offering given over to the Lord. And the intention, you see, of this bread and of this table was to symbolize God's mutual covenant relationship. It was to symbolize the relationship that God desires to have with his people, that I will be their God, as an often repeated phrase in the Old Testament. I will be their God and and they will be my people. And of course, God doesn't eat bread. And so he immediately offers the bread right back to the priests in which they were to partake of the bread and eat it. God wouldn't eat it. He didn't need it. But God gave the bread right back to the the priests representing all of Israel because he wanted to express that he wants relationship with his people. God wants relationship with you and with me. The bread teaches us that our true nourishment is, on, is in intimacy with God himself. That he wants this close, personal relationship with each one of us. And that's why he offers that bread right back to us. So when we think about the table and the bread that was there, this prepared table, it, it, it's to remind us about relationship with God. That's what's central. And that we are to put our hope in God and in having this relationship with God. And that raises a question. The question is this, what is the object of your hope? What is the object of your hope? Because hope rests on an object that you desire, that you do not have or do not have in completion, but you desire it. So what is the object of your hope? Well, when you hope in the Lord, What you're doing is you're hoping in relationship with him, that that's what you're, you're craving or you're desiring the most, that you want to be with him and to know him and to be known by him, that he is your beloved and that you are beloved in return. And what's amazing about this relationship is that it's the Lord who initiates and redeems it and sustains the relationship. And there's no circumstance, nothing at all, that can trouble or bring trouble into the relationship. Nothing can harm the relationship with God. Nothing of this life can get in its way. There's no spiritual power that can get in the the way. So when you put your hope in God, what is happening is that you're hoping in Him. He is the object of your, the central heart of your desire. And when you have that, when you have God as the object of your desire, it's certain it's guaranteed that that is what you will receive. But you see, if your hope is in another object, uh, let's say your hope is in some temporal or earthly hope, it might have to do with, some, uh, it might have to do with a, a relationship or a job or something you're hoping in your job or, or some other ambition uh, that, that you have. When your hope is in that, then uh, that hope is contingent and is inherently uncertain. If your hope uh, fails to be fulfilled and for some reason what you're hoping for doesn't come to pass, there will be a great temptation to go into despair. Or you'll do what most of us do is we'll, we'll let go of that hope and jump to a new hope, but we'll do the exact same thing and go through the exact same routine of hoping in that temporal thing, which then Uh, We'll end up, we don't end up receiving and then we end up being quite disappointed and potentially falling into despair or you end up receiving the object of your hope, this temporal object that you desire and then it's even more sour because you realize that what you were hoping for all along doesn't really satisfy you and doesn't make you uh, happy and content uh, that you were uh, anticipating and then there you fall into Despair. Now, of course, it's it's not wrong, not wrong at all, to have temporal, earthly hopes. We all of us in this room have those, but they become a deep problem when they have their ult- when they take the place of ultimacy in our hearts, and then you see we're setting ourselves up to fall into despair. It was actually Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper in his book, Faith, Hope and Love, in which he says this about despair. He says, despair is not a mood or a psychological state in which an individual falls almost against his will, but rather despair is a decision of the will. But let's bring a clarification to that, even if that is the case. None of us really consciously choose despair. Oh, I want to despair. That doesn't happen. What happens is, is that we choose vain hopes, temporal hopes, and give them ultimacy. And it's when those fail or we achieve them and they don't actually bring what we want, then we fall into despair. So we're choosing despair by choosing these vain, what Jeremiah calls them, vain hopes. And I think uh, Lois actually uh, experienced this very sort of thing. Uh, lois actually grew up at park street church in the 1940s and 1950s she identified as a christian Uh, she did attend church off and on most of her life and she clearly had a sincere level of gratitude to god but as many of us got to know lois it became fairly clear that god was was not first in her mind or psyche and her decisions and it was clear that when she thought about God, even though God was had some level of importance to her, that uh, it wasn't about relationship and an intimate connection uh, in relationship with God. I think uh, it was clear that it was her art. She was an artist and she was a professional dancer. It was her dance career that uh, was had been far more thrilling and really had become the focus of her hope. That was what was... Primary, and it it took Lois to become homeless and penniless and isolated, and bedbound. She not forget about dancing. She couldn't even uh, uh, towards the end. Be she wasn't even able to walk. It brought her to finally admit that her life had been a continual chasing after vain hopes. Even her professional dancing career, and she had done dancing with the stars and other things, though she was very grateful for it, she, she, she realized that it was, this too was just a vain hope. And that's part of the reason why she had come to this place of despair. And it was in conversations, many conversations with various uh, members of the church who were visiting her, bedtime prayers that Tracy and I would often have with her, a kindness from our wings ministry who was uh, doing all kinds of uh, practical helps for her, that Lois finally came to this place that she realized that she had been pursuing and dancing with the wrong partner all along. And then she she came to this place that she understood that Christ Jesus was the dance partner that she had uh, most desperately longed for and now was wanting to dance with for the rest of her life in eternity. And so on April 25th, uh, Lois requested and received baptism. And although she was unable to walk, it was very clear that, that her heart was dancing. And there, were, there was about uh, 10 of us from Park Street who had gathered around her as she received baptism while lying in bed. And I, I would say that after that time, uh, I really noticed in our bedtime prayers that, no, that Lois's prayers begin to shift. She used to be very kind of distracted in her prayers. She would mostly talk to me rather than praying to God when we would be praying together. But after this, it, it seemed to get her prayers became much more personal and revealing and, and tender. And it, it, it was, became clear that she really understood that God was right there in the room, sitting on her bed, uh, listening to her. So how do we nourish hope? Well, I think we learned from the table That it's all about relationship with God. And that this relationship cannot be taken away. And when you put your hope in that relationship, your hope will grow. It will begin to overflow. And when you let go of those vain hopes that only lead down the path of despair, it will greatly encourage you. And you'll begin to bust at the seams with, with hope as you focus on him and relationship with him. Which no illness in no circumstance, can touch. But then finally, hope is nourished as we face our enemies. This is the last phrase of that phrase in Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, Psalm 23 is a psalm of David. And this phrase, in the presence of my enemies... Uh, is almost surely referring to David's experience written in 1 Samuel 21 in which David is reflecting on his eating the showbread out of the table from the table of the presence in the tabernacle Uh, and there was enemies there when this happened Uh, David was running uh, from King Saul he and his men were hungry perhaps starving and David went to the high priest Ali and, uh, and asked for food, and Ali Melek said, We've got nothing. Uh, the only thing that we have is the showbread that's in, in the holy place. And Ali Melek consented and had David and, and his men uh, eat from the bread. And as David and his men ate the bread, uh, David literally ate bread, this bread, uh, in the presence of enemies. Because there uh, also was a man named Doeg who was Saul's spy and who ended up reporting this uh, very event uh, to King Saul. And because of that, Elimelech, the, the priest, and all the other priests were murdered under Saul's command. And of course, all of this is a, a, a foreshadowing of Jesus, uh, who ate his last supper in fellowship and relationship with his disciples. But he too ate his bread in the presence of enemies, you Remember? the devil filled Judas, um, even as he had received the bread. He filled Judas, and, as, uh, and Judas betrayed him. The theme of my enemies, it's actually quite common throughout the Bible. Uh, in, in the book of Psalms, the enemies occurs uh, 78 times. There's a few things that we can learn as we study the, the enemies uh, throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms. It's that the enemies are spiritual. They're not literal. They're not human beings. Uh, Human beings can be influenced by them, of course, but the enemies are ultimately spiritual. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And the enemies, you see, are far too strong for any one of us. It says in in Psalm 18, uh, for they were too mighty, the enemies were too mighty for me. Not only so, but we also learn that the enemies are, are very crafty. They use all kinds of tricks to get us to fall into their traps. In Psalm 83, it says, The enemies lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. It reminds me, that craftiness reminds me of just a couple of weeks ago, I was walking my golden retriever off leash in, a, in a, a golf course, which you can do at this time of year. And uh, as I was walking Haley, uh, in the corner of my eye, I saw another dog all by itself. And then I immediately realized, oh, that's actually not a dog, it's a coyote. Now, Haley didn't see the coyote, we, we kind of just kept on going, but I immediately started having this debate in my mind, what should I do? Uh, and, uh, and I went back and forth for in a, couple, in a split second, and then I told Haley to sit, and I, I leashed her up. Not ten seconds later, that coyote was ten feet away from us. And uh, I did what I thought I should do. I kind of got all big, and I really raised my voice. And I yelled and screamed at, uh, at it. And thankfully, it, it immediately scampered off. I, I wouldn't have done this unless I had received advice from another dog walker back in the last spring. They told me that, uh, that it was a common uh, ploy of the coyotes to, uh, for a single soul coyote to play with, the, with with the dogs on the golf course, and that they would, uh, you know, within a few minutes, dogs can become friends pretty quickly, and uh, and they would play together. And the coyote would lure the dog out into the out into the woods, and immediately the coyote pack would would pounce, and the dog would become supper. Uh, and thankfully. Uh, I was aware of the craftiness of the coyote and we were able to spare the pain uh, that could have been caused uh, in this situation. The enemies are crafty and so we have to be careful. But not only this, the enemies, they stir doubt and they create fear within us. Psalm 78 verse 19, the enemies, they ask a question in order to plant doubt and really to stir fear in you, and it's connected to the table. they, They spoke against God, the enemy, saying, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Raising this question, Can God really care for you while you're out in the wilderness? Can God prepare a table for you while you're in the wilderness? While you're suffering from that illness? Can God prepare a table for you when uh, you're dealing with that work situation or that relationship at home? You see, the enemies, they stir, they stir fear in us and, and angst. And while Jesus truly was unafraid in the presence of the enemies, let's be honest, every one of us, every one of us gets afraid and fears the hurt and the pain, and the the promises that are given to us by the enemies. Now, fear is related to hope, because there is a domino effect. Uh, when when you when the enemies stir fear, fear then removes and takes the place of hope. Can't have fear kind of taking over in your mind and heart and have hope at the same time. The two things don't. Go together. So how are are you released from the fear of the enemies? Well, actually, it's the table, once again, that serves as the key. Because it's at the table of the Lord, whether it's literal here or just figuratively representing a relationship with the Lord. It's at the table of of the Lord that we have the opportunity and are called to examine ourselves and to confess. And I would suggest to you that when you're dealing with fears, the way to engage or to handle the fears is to confess them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's something pretty funny about us in which we all have a powerful tendency to, to keep our fears hidden and disguised we don't want to admit them we don't even want to admit our fears to ourselves or to the, the the ones closest around us but there is a power you see there is a power and a freedom when we take our fears and we put them on the table and we confess them to the lord and we ask for for help the Lord responds to that confession. And it's, it's taking part of the power of fear is that it just holds you into the dark. And when you take the fear and bring it into the light and, and confess it openly before God as well as before others, that the freedom comes. God's promise is not to remove the enemies. He nowhere, not, not until uh, his kingdom comes, do we have the promise that the enemies will finally be gone. The promise is that he will... Remove the fear of the enemies. And that, of course, is in verse 3 of Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the greatest of enemies, death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And it's by being with him that we have the freedom to confess, to confess the fears and to experience the freedom. So if you want to nourish hope, you need to deal with the fears. And if you need, the only way to deal with the fears is to confess them to the Lord, bringing them into the light. And it almost always means you need to bring confession to a trusted spiritual friend. So how do we nourish hope? Here, I think there are a lot of ways, but here we've just reflected on three ways out of Psalm 23:5 of nourishing hope. There's this prepared table, which is this reminder That God is, he's working and his his tenderness and graciousness to, to you. So pay attention to the work that God is doing right now in your life. There is tender graciousness that is there. If you would open up your eyes and pay attention and see the kindness of God in your life. And it's about a table. Secondly, we nourish hope through focusing on the relationship with God. Making him the very center of the object of our hope. Desiring him in relationship. Focusing and putting the time into that relationship that we need to do every day in prayer and in scripture reading and meditation and and considering him and and, and being with him and talking to him. And letting go of those, those vain hopes that only lead us down the path of despair. And then finally, we can nourish hope by dealing with the enemies, which requires us to confess our fears and then experiencing the freedom that God gives. And in that freedom, hope grows. Well, Lois faced enemies. Uh, She faced the the enemy of fear of dying alone. And and, and having lived with Lois for six months in our home, we really got to know her. And another fear uh, manifested itself at, towards the very end of her life and it ended up uh, being the fear around money um, when Lois came to move in with us she basically had no money and uh, and though Tracy and I were were, were bearing the, the the brunt of the the financials and that was something the Lord just made it clear that that we were to do Lois at the same time uh, interestingly was receiving a, a uh, a lot of government stimulus money, through uh, because of COVID, and uh, for her, she was receiving quite a bit of money, more money than she was was used to having, and she wasn't telling us at all about it. And in fact, when she did bring uh, did end up bringing up money, she ended up directly lying to us about it. I guess she thought that we would somehow demand the money from her or or do something that where because she was vulnerable and not in control. And of course, we would not do something like that, but. That's what she was afraid of and she was willing to even in these last few months of her life was willing to um, deceive us about it. Well things came to um, a head one Saturday night uh, in July and we Lois and I had a very unique final night together. Uh, the rest of the family had gone away and I was actually preaching the next day um, here on the topic of fear and, uh, and so I, I was taking care of Lois that day. I was working on the sermon and, and, and we had agreed that, uh, that we would have supper together. And then I would, uh, I would go over the sermon with her and she could kind of give me some pointers on how to make the sermon better. Uh, Lois, was, she was very intelligent and she was really good with words and, uh, and, and she did. I remember her making some really good points. I, that night, it was the only time the entire, um, entire year plus that I knew Lois that I ever had a, a, a one-on-one meal with her. I had prepared her favorite childhood dinner which was a uh, hot dog and Boston baked beans. Uh, she said it reminded her of her father and uh, so we had a, a wonderful uh, dinner together in her room and uh, we laughed and, and, and chatted and, uh, and then I went over the sermon. I went through the sermon and she gave some really helpful points uh, all about fear. But then Lois at the end of this she got really serious for a moment and then she said, Michael, I, I, I need to make a confession. I haven't been telling you all the truth. And then she proceeded to explain everything that had been going on with her finances. And she apologized for lying to Tracy and, and myself. And, 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 and then we ended up talking about how she wanted to use, use those funds, uh, assuming she wasn't going to be able to. And, uh, and it was a really remarkable moment uh, it's one of those things you never forget, uh, in which it was—it uh, ended up being her very, uh, her very last conscious hours. Uh, by the next morning, she was unconscious, and within five days, uh, Lois died, uh, having never really woken uh, from after that night at the supper. And and it was clear the Lord just made the time happen, and just happened to have us talk about fear, and she just happened to uh, to then make this confession, this kind of this last hour confession uh, to me. And it was clear at the end of this confession that her heart was lighter and that she was freed from this fear, this crippling fear around money that ha- had led her to do other, uh, to really to sin uh, against her own friends. And it was this Wonderful uh, moment of celebration. I, I, I didn't realize any of that that was going on at the moment. It was only um, you know, many days later that I realized what had just happened, that the Holy Spirit had orchestrated this entire thing so that she would be brought to this place of, of laying it all out and being done with those vain hopes and entering into this marvelous place of living hope and hope in God. Many people... Uh, during that year contributed to Lois discovering hope. But I make no mistake about it, there's only one hero of that story, and, it was, and it's Jesus. Jesus was the hero of Lois' life, just as he desires to be your hero and, and my hero. It was Jesus who prepared a room for Lois. And it's Jesus through his spirit that is definitely doing something right now in your lives in which he is preparing something and he's inviting you to see it. It was Jesus who was wooing Lois and doing whatever it took to to call her into a deeper relationship, a real intimate living relationship with him. And, and, And it's the same thing that the spirit is certainly trying to do even now In each of our lives in which he's calling you uh, into that relationship or if you're in that relationship into a deeper relationship and he's inviting you to analyze your life and to see those vain hopes that are just getting in the way and only creating the pathway to despair and it was Jesus who gave Lois the opportunity to deal with her fears one last time praise God Lois had the, the courage to do what she did and may you also have such courage to to put the fear on the table before the Lord and before others and be done with it and to enter into 2022 nourishing hope in the Lord yeah things are hard right now but there is hope in the Lord and it that overshadows all the shadows And it brings light into even this dark time. So as we begin 2022, brothers and sisters, let us nourish hope in the Lord. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Lord God, may we overflow with hope, be glorified in us, and may we be overjoyed full of hope for the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.